Would you turn with me, please? Tonight's message is entitled Faith and Promise. Promise is so important to us. We must always observe God's promises. So please turn with me to page 875 of your Trinity Psalter hymnal. And we're going to just expand upon the Heidelberg Catechism. You already read some responsively. I'd like to do that again. Beginning with question 20, we'll do 20 through 23. This is Lord's, the Heidelberg Catechism is broken into 52 sections. And uh, the purpose of that is that in the continental reformed churches, the tradition has been that one service every Sunday will be centered around a section of the Heidelberg Catechism. So since there are 52 weeks in a year, there are 52 sections uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism. And Lord's Day 7, that's the seventh section, deals with faith. So um, I will ask the question and then we will respond in unison with the answer. Question 20. Are all people then saved by Christ just as they were lost through Adam? No. No. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Question 21. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has granted not Forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace, only because of Christ's merit. Question 22. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. Question 23. What are these articles? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. <coughs> I'd like you to turn with me now to chapter 4 of Hosea. I want to just follow on from what Pastor Miller has just introduced to us, and that is Hosea, the prophet, was raised by God, brought and charged by him, to sue God's covenant lawsuit against the people of Israel. And that's the point that we're picking this up from. And we're only reading 
from chapter 4, the first six verses. Hosea 4, 1-6 Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let no one accuse for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet shall also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. <clears throat> so God holds contention with the priests because of their, the failure in their office. And now we turn to our main passage for tonight, which is from John chapter 17, verses 6 to 18, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer. John 17, 6 to 18. <clears throat> Commencing at verse 6. And this is Jesus praying to God the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them and I am no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been, has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, <coughs> that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't, do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. May God bless to us the reading of his word. 
make imprint that word upon our hearts let us come before the throne of grace most merciful God and Father we stand in awe of your word we ask O oh Lord that your word may ring true in our ears that we may hear and that we may do what you require of us that we may give to you the glory that is due your name therefore O oh Lord guard the word that we that we receive this evening God of purified and grant, O Lord, that your name may be magnified and gloried. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> you know, saints, throughout life, we're pressured to believe and act upon so many things that we hear. We are bombarded continually. We are expected to believe many things that are very strongly asserted to us, purportedly by very credible authorities. The credibility of those authorities is often enhanced by the way they dress, by the uniforms they wear, by the offices they hold. In every case, we are exhorted, one way or another, to believe them, to trust them, and to follow them. What we believe, and why we believe these things, involves measures of trust, veracity, reason, judgment, and perceptions of credibility or belief. Given that the Latin word credo, which is the root of the word credibility, means what is to be believed. We are expected to believe. Now let me give you a few examples of that. Social engineers make use of many tools in their attempts to influence public perceptions and beliefs. Among those tools are printed materials, media broadcasts, public announcements, and the list goes on. We're about to have some elections. The election material that is being distributed is being distributed in the hope by each of those who send it out that the message that they that they purport to stand for is believed. Propaganda is a branch of social engineering that seeks to influence outcomes by subliminally or overt means. The information we garner through each of these different communication vehicles needs to be filtered very carefully. If we were to take all the advertisements, all the publications, all the messages seriously and blindly follow them, we'd be in quite a pickle, wouldn't we? Trust, perception, apprehension, comprehension, experience are some of the things that factor into what we believe and hold to. Elements of faith in all of these are inescapable. The dictionary defines faith as a sense of the mind to the truth of a proposition or statement for which there is not complete evidence or belief in general. Did you catch that? <coughs> Let's consider some examples. Have you ever tried to scratch a piece of steel with your fingernail? Can I get a, just a little hand up to you? Yes, we've tried to scratch steel. Didn't work too well, did it? Why? How deeply were you able to gouge your fingernails into iron? Let me guess. 
not one bit. That's because our fingernails are softer than steel. You recognize that, right? I expect we'd see that clearly again, right? Yet those who study the technology of ancient Egypt expect us to believe a narrative that runs totally contrary to all logic. Let me example that. Egyptologists have found large statues, and I'm sure you're aware of that, that were carved out of basalt and granite. Those stones are extremely hard. The only thing that's a little bit harder is diamond. It's very difficult to machine a basalt or a granite piece of rock. Yet, the idols, the statues, the objects that have been dug up out of the earth are extremely finely polished, extremely finely machined. Very thin pieces of that hard rock have been machined and polished and no tooling marks have been left and we don't know how they did it. But do you know what the common message is as to how that was done? It was done with brass or bronze chisels and a wooden mallet. Now if you can believe that, then you can believe that pigs fly upside down and backwards <laughs> to Rome and back. Bronze is soft. It's less hard than iron. However incongruous and seemingly impossible it is to believe that bronze tools could be used to make finely finished and well-polished carved statues. This is the narrative that is pushed in our schools and our universities that are supposedly highly scientific and very well-educated. There's something missing in the equation. I hope you all get that. Likewise, while facts pertain to the purported tools and objects that have been found are both obviously true, the narrative cannot be accepted. Likewise, beliefs that come under the narrower definition of faith lies not just in the supporting facts themselves, but also in the interpretation of them. Heidelberg Catechism 20 and to 23, those questions are designed to help us to understand the true nature of faith. Lord's Day 7 explains how Christ's elect receive true faith, trust, and true comfort. Be aware, however, that our explanation of the Word of God and the work of Jesus can go only so far. We must remember at all times the distinction between the creator and the creature that we are there is also a finite limit limit to human influence in what the Westminster Confession calls second cause that's the work that men can do in the proclamation of the good news of the reconciliation we can find in Jesus Christ and nature sorry what can we do with good news well we can do one thing with it that is honorable we can take that good news and present it 
we can present the word of God with fidelity, with faithfulness to what is given us in the word. The effect thereof, however, how it is received, is out of our hands, out of our control. We can present the word, we can present the gospel, but how it is received is not something we can control. As much as anyone may attempt to explain the things of God, the mind, and particularly the sinful heart of men, cannot be penetrated by mere human logic. For each of us, there comes a point at which we must say, every person must believe. Anyone who refuses to believe rejects faith because of the hardness of the human heart. Because of that hardness, they will not receive true faith. This position is offensive to the world around us. It offends people because it speaks of a stubborn fallen nature of men, a nature that cannot be understood outside of divine illumination. Note the contrast here. Only by divine revelation can we begin to receive true understanding and true faith. Now that has implications. That means without God taking the initiative, we are helpless. Much is written in God's word. Words within the sacred scriptures that comfort God's children. Words that require a childlike trust. To delve deeper into the word will lead to hearing and reading things that may be unsettling and may truly trouble us. And sometimes so it should. Take, for example, the question, why is there good and evil? Or consider why a seemingly very reasonable person, upon hearing God's message of salvation and finding all of his questions answered, can still turn around and say, I don't get it. It does not make sense. This illustrates the complex contrast of information and the conclusion information processing and the conclusions that are drawn from a person's internal processing of what has been learned or heard. The Holy Scriptures, Holy Writ says, you must believe and you must obey the Lord. You must worship only Him and you must do so in a manner He has prescribed. You must have faith. Yet God is in control, not you. This is so offensive in a world that seeks autonomy. Heidelberg Catechism, question 20, explains that judgment that came, came through the first Adam. Chapter question 21 says that true faith is the work of God in and through the operation of the Holy Spirit in our lives for the sake of Christ alone. Question 22 speaks to the promises of God to all who believe. And question 23 presents the Apostles' Creed as a concise summary of what is to be held true and faithful and just by all whom God grants true faith to. So in unpacking the Lord's Prayer, the High Priestly Prayer, and the Heidelberg Catechism, questions and answers tonight. I want to deal with under three separate topics. 
true faith and conflict with the world. Secondly, God's covenant promises. And thirdly, covenant signs and seals. These three are very important to us. So beginning with true faith and conflict in the world. <coughs> Hebrews 11 verses 1 to 3 bring to us these words. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's a good definition of faith. It's the best because it came from God. We are familiar with the fall of Adam and with the judgment that came to him through his sins against the Lord. We know that the wages of sin is death. We know it. We've heard it said so often. Paul says this clearly in Romans 6.23. But do we really understand it? We are by nature dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead men don't do anything. They cannot in any way believe. Speaking in terms of our tempor <coughs> temporal existence, they are incapacitated by their death. They're not just a little bit incapacitated, they are totally incapacitated. Does this confuse you? Hopefully, that's plain enough. Dead men don't fight. Dead men don't decide. And people who are dead in their trespasses and sins are stuck in, that, in their condition. The narrative of Bible history acquaints us with the gravity of sin. The gravitational pull of sin is inescapable except by divine intervention. That's what we see in the book of Hosea so clearly. That's exactly what Jesus said in our passage from John. Hosea relays to us the Lord's accusations against the Israelites. The Lord had a controversy with the inhabitants of the promised land. That might prompt us to ask the question, what good then was the 40-year training that they received in the wilderness wanderings? That solemn journey from Egypt to Canaan to arrive finally at the land of promise. What good has the wilderness journey accomplished? Not many years after they landed in Canaan, and were brought into the land and settled and established there. Having been re refined in the crucible of the wilderness, the crucible of fire, Hosea recorded the Lord's assay to his people. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Wow, what a condemnation. Isn't that tragic? Hosea, in Hosea 4.4, it seems the Lord lays much accountability for this deplorable condition on the shoulders of their leaders, the priests. But there is so much more to take in. In verse 6, God says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 
because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me, and since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Perhaps this needs to be spelled out a little more clearly. There is conflict in the land of Israel. The people do not have no faith. Their faith and trust is in themselves. The priests refused to believe and teach the oracles of God. The priests were corrupt and thereby led the people astray. The priests were teaching the ways of the fallen nature of the first Adam and the people blindly followed. The faith of the sinful followers of the first Adam is easy. Do you want to know what that se- the secret of that easy faith is? Do what's good in your own eyes. Make your own determination. You'll be okay. That's the faith of fallen man. Follow your own autonomous understanding all the way over the cliff like lemmings. You all know about lemmings, don't you? If we were left to ourselves, that's precisely what you and I would do too. That's the message of our text. Look around, consider for one moment what is happening in the world around us every day. You see how there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing of adultery. There's breaking of all bounds. There is bloodshed shed at every corner of the globe. Is it any wonder? Sin is seductive and sin takes hold of its victims. Sin is sin because sin is exciting and compelling. Sin is sin because they enjoy it. Sin grabs hold of its victims. In fact, sin is so compelling that those caught in its grip cannot escape its gravitational pull except by divine intervention. Every one of us here needs that divine intervention continually. We have it in Christ. The entirety, the whole of the scriptures speak to us of Christ, of his work, of God's work. The scriptures tell us clearly there is no hope for fallen man except in Christ. In his journey on the road from to Emmaus, as recorded in Luke 24, he records for our nourishment and enlightenment that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. To his fellow travelers on the road to Emmaus, this was the news they needed to hear. This is exceptionally good news for us today too. The simple verse tells us that Jesus indeed is the promised Messiah, the Savior of his people. And that being the case, we'd better listen up right now. Jesus explains in John 17 verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. That is such a densely packed statement that we are seen in Christ as having fully kept God's word. There is forgiveness with God. 
There is restoration and reconciliation with him. And it's only in Jesus. The conflict of faith is not a a choice of faith or no faith. But that true faith is anchored in Jesus, the rock of our salvation. That rock is the only place you can keep at anchor. The only place that will hold your anchor in place. Jesus the Messiah, the risen King. The key to accepting this fact, the key to proper faith, is Jesus. Jesus did all the work and the the Father gave him all who would hear and receive the things he told them. Their faith was given them from the Father. That's why they keep his word. Now we move to God's covenant promises. The answer in Heidelberg Catechism question 21 leaves no doubt. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. His word is so important to us. Is his message to each of us, whether we receive it or reject it. True knowledge, however, has very significant consequences. Through it comes confidence that God is merciful and gracious to forgive all our sins and to count the and to count the faithful as forensically righteous out of nothing other than the pure, free gift of salvation. I'll repeat that. God is merciful and gracious to forgive. He declares us forensically righteous out of nothing other than his pure, free grace, his gift of salvation. The gift of God's grace and mercy removes the curse and condemnation of sin. This gift places a new name above our heads. God looks upon the work of Jesus and sees his faithful elect, pure and undefiled, forgiven, no longer, no longer condemned. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, truly divine, and at the same time born of a woman, so that he is simultaneously fully human, flesh of our own flesh, able to save men from their sins, not just able to save, but save precisely because of what Jesus did for you and for me. His work alone merits redemption, nothing else. Now that word redemption has lost a lot of its significance in our language today. Let's try to clarify that term a little bit. You all know of pawn shops, P-A-W-N, right? I just want to make sure you don't misunderstand that. Good. That's a shop that will give you money in exchange for your goods. Those goods will be held for you under a contract or lien. But you have to pay back that money and a lender's fee. And you have a timeline in which to, re- to pay that back to redeem your goods. You get the word redeem now? Guess what happens if you don't pay the money back in time? On time ahead of time. You lose all title to the goods that you have pawned. 
They can be sold. The new owner of them can do with them as they want. The children of the first Adam were in a far worse condition than the person who pawns off goods with the hope of redeeming them. The debt attached to disobedience unto God is death. There is no chance of redemption for a dead man. The dead are done for, pardon the use of colloquial English. Contrary to this natural condition, Jesus paid the full price for my redemption, not just mine, but for all who are his adopted children. God's adoption of sinners, justified and sanctified, is Jesus' work. Redemption is a work that rests on salvation that the Lord promised the first Adam, reiterated to Abraham, expanded in great glory through Moses and other patriarchs, conveyed in to the faithful, following by sinful men such as Joshua, David, and finally fulfilled in the perfect man, Jesus. Let's take note from what Paul says in Romans 9, verses 19 to 29. You may follow me if you wish. Romans 9, 19 to 29. Beginning at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath destined, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Through the number of the sons of Israel, sorry, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. Paul teaches very clearly here that redemption, justification, and glorification of the elect in Christ is the work of God, pure and simple. Not our work, not our decision, not our action can add anything to that. In John 17, verse 11, Jesus asks the Father to keep his people in his name. The psalmist says in Psalm 138, verse 2, 
that the Lord has raised his name above all that he has made. That is the name. That name is the anchor of our trust, the anchor of our faith. There is no other anchor or root of trust. The psalmist says in Psalm 89.14 that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before him. Well, in John 17, we read of the work of the high priest. Jesus prayed to the Father as the time for his most demanding duty drew near. See how Jesus made known the name of the Father to the people whom he had given the Son out of the world. Notice carefully that Jesus says, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. This is a most sacred contrast against the picture that we see in Hosea 4, where the false priests of Israel were abruptly condemned. A far greater statement is made in Jesus' words that follow, just selectively pulling a few of those out. Quote, Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, and they believe that you sent me. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one. Let's let those words soak in for a moment. Preservation from the impact of the evil one requires divine protection continually. By the right hand, the strong hand of the Father in heaven, his name declares his character. The fact that he is able to save, that is what God does for us sinners. Soon after this prayer, Jesus was arrested and taken captive. He endured the indignity of facing Ananus and Caiaphas in a kangaroo court. Here the ultimate conflict of truth against corruption of truth was played out. Let's just take this in for a moment. Reflecting on the narrative of what took place in the Sanhedrin, you can read this yourself from Matthew chapter 26, and Mark chapter 14 at your leisure. But I'm sure you'll recognize the, the sequence of events that took place. Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin, the collegiate of judges of Israel. The judges were required to follow the laws of God pertaining to witnesses and evidentiary preservation and testimony, truth of testimony. That's truth and verity in modern words. The chief priests and the whole council were seek actively seeking testimony against Jesus. Why? The text tells us they sought to put him to death. Forbidden. Forbidden in God's word. Many false witnesses appeared, but their testimony did not agree. Truth was corrupted lies upon lies. Some witnesses openly lied against Jesus. Their lies just did not stack up. They broke the ninth commandment. The high priest sought to coerce Jesus 
to testify against himself, another abomination from God's laws. And Jesus chose, in the modern parlance, to plead the fifth. He kept silent. The application of the ninth commandment per Deuteronomy 19 verses 14 to 21, if you want to read up on that. None of the false evidence comports with the judicial standards that the Sanhedrin were duty-bound to apply and enforce. They're a false court that sought to do wrong. Indeed, the Sanhedrin, the whole of the Sanhedrin, worked a deep evil. Then, right before those judges, Jesus revealed that he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. There is such a clear, dynamic tension here that we should take note. Jesus gave testimony as the Father and as the Son. He gave the double witness. He met evidentiary requirements. He is the true high priest, but he is also the true king and the true prophet. In this he gave the triple witness. Our doctrine of the Trinity is so important that we understand the application of the economy of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the application of God's word in the world at large. He is, Jesus is our high priest, our prophet and our king. And Jesus did exactly what the Father had sent him to do. We saw that from his high priestly prayer. The Sanhedrin, on the other hand, did what they were not permitted to do, not at all. Yet, think of this for one moment. It had to be so. It could not have happened otherwise. What Jesus did had to happen. No other outcome from this false court could have happened. And here we have to acknowledge that God was in control. And we find that hard to digest. Those are difficult words for us to, to internalize. It was decreed from before the beginning and therefore it had to happen. And 1 Timothy 6.13 tells us Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, and Jesus took upon himself the sins of all his elect. Our Saviour was crucified and slain as a sacrificial lamb, the lamb to atone for our sins, your sins and mine, so that we may be justified and that we may have peace with God and enter eternal rest with the Father. Let us acknowledge with gratitude this great free gift that he has given. Jesus came as the prophet, priest and king of God's true people, the true and faithful Israel. The promises that were made to the first Adam, they were repeated to a true Abraham. God cut covenant with Abraham and promised that he would be the father of many nations, generations upon generations. God swore an oath upon his own name because there is no greater name to swear by. He gave his law through Moses and fulfilled deliverance that had been promised to Abraham. The land of promise, Canaan, was a foreshadowing of our eternal inheritance promised in the second Adam. God sent his prophets to keep alive in his people the knowledge of eternal promises of Sabbath rest 
God ruled his people by way of kings, most of whom were unfaithful to covenant promises. Many were exceedingly wicked. All these were necessary to demonstrate, even to us today, the profound mystery and greatness of the redemption that we have through and in Jesus Christ. The scriptures repeatedly demonstrate the total depravity of sin and the way of redemption in Jesus Christ is the only escape from eternal death and damnation. True faith is the work of God in preservation of the remnant, the faithful children of the Most High. We lay claim to God's promises by faith and in Christ we trust the Lord to keep his word. And that leads us to the last and shorter section on the covenant signs and seals. Throughout the old administration of the covenant before Christ came, there were signs and seals of God's covenant mercies. King David most aptly reflected upon God's mercies in Psalm 51. And consider the recognition of the greatness of God in Psalm 139. When we read these texts that witness to the work of Christ, we are indeed humbled. David could, in Psalm 51 verse 11, petition the Lord not to remove his Holy Spirit from him. So we know that from this that even the saints of old were under the divine protection of the Lord. God's covenant promises are true and dependable. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the God, in God, the Holy Spirit. For this faith that we have as Christians, this precious link to the triune God, this is the true faith that the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. We can't do this ourselves. God's self-revelation is clear. Yet sinful man stubbornly looks the other way. So the Spirit helps us. He gives us ears to hear and eyes that see and an open heart. The Spirit wants us to know him as God, to depend upon God for every bit of life itself. Psalm 115, 2-11 says, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel, feet, but do not work, walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. It is beautiful that we can depend on the triune God. We can put our trust in him. We can call on his name and we are not disappointed. For the anchor of our faith is great and cannot compare with anything that anyone else might offer us or that we might find in the world about us. There is no other shelter here. There is no other safety in the world. Let us think again of these glorious attributes of God. We know our God will not fade over time because God is eternal. We know that God won't change his mind or break his promise because he is unchangeable. 
we know God won't ever run up against a problem too, that's too big for him to solve because he is almighty we can go to God for direction because he is perfectly wise saints we must and we do seek the living God the Lord for everything we need because he is the overflowing fountain of all good each and every word of our God is a source of renewed confidence this is our God in whom we can put our trust God gave us covenant signs and seals to remind us and reassure his people of his sovereign mercies and to establish the fact that the Lord is the rock of our salvation and the very present comfort in times of trouble as we face conflict in the world as we face the challenges of our own sinful state and condition let us remember he is a faithful God willing to forgive, ready to forgive go to him, flee to him he is the rock and comfort of all you need every time we witness a baptism every time we partake in the Lord's table we participate in the ceremony and practices of faith by faith through these we experience as we walk in God's covenant promises his judgment over sin his covenant mercies in forgiving sins the cancelling of our debt and the declaration of us as spotless saints part of the body of Christ his bride for whom he gave the ultimate sacrifice as the Lamb of God and we are assured, reassured comforted in Christ the risen conquering King we confess our faith weekly to remember the immense privileges that we have in Christ our Lord these are the privileges of the faith God gives us St. John writing to the churches of Asia wrote these words grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard your word, we have received your word this evening. We ask for your grace and mercy that your word may nurture our hearts may guide our walk today and henceforth. We ask for a living faith that will direct everything we do that we may be kept in your name and give you glory in all things. Father, we do humbly petition you to keep us from safe from the wiles of the evil one and cause his clutches not to take hold of us, but cause us to flee to you constantly. Grant us there, O Lord, the safe harbour that you have promised your own. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.